None of the content on this or any episode of the Cranium Science Podcast, Cranium Science Journal Club, or on any pages of the website kratomscience.com should be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for kratomscience.com. Your source for all things Kratom. We have a very special guest today, Pascal Tangway. He has a bottomless well of knowledge about the history of Kratom, drug policy in Southeast Asia and Thailand, where he's lived and worked for 20 years with the International Drug Policy Consortium and Asian Harm Reduction Network. We talk about all that, the World Health Organization's stance on Kratom, and Thailand's recent decriminalization of Kratom, and more. You've, you've done a lot of work in, um, looks like, harm reduction and drug policy over the years. Okay. What, what do you do in your consulting work, exactly? Uh, I do consulting on uh, what you said, essentially, harm reduction, drug policy, uh, broader public health, HIV-related communicable diseases, uh, providing support to civil society organizations, non-governmental organizations, as well as governments, United Nations agencies, and development partners like donors. So my expertise is really to help facilitate dialogues between civil society organizations and governments and donors to facilitate consensus on strategic implementation of interventions that will benefit, that create public health benefits in the long term. My expertise is for, has been for a long time around um, drugs, drug policy, criminal justice systems, and how that impacts and intersects with social justice and public health. And you're originally from Canada, that's right. Is that right? That's right. I'm from originally from Montreal in Canada. Okay. And and so what drew you to um, the Southeast Asian region and you're in Thailand now? Yeah. Uh, I've been in Thailand for uh, almost 20 years now. Initially, mm-hmm. I came out here as a backpacker and got comfortably <laughs> stuck in Thailand. So it's not that I had the... You know, a plan. It wasn't part of a strategy. It wasn't, you know, I had studied, uh, you know, Asian studies or anything like that. Uh, While I was doing my uh, master's degree, I left with some friends who were based in Auckland in New Zealand. And we went for a backpacking trip for six months around Southeast Asia. I decided to stay at the end of the trip and, you know, got my first job shortly after I decided to stay at a regional organization uh, called the Asian Harm Reduction Network, which is a a multi-country organization. Let let me restart that. It's a network-based organization that covers multiple countries in Asia to provide technical support on implementation of harm reduction strategies and programs. That organization has still since closed. I worked there from 2004 to 2009 after which point I became consultant. In 2011, I was offered a job by a large American international NGO called Population Services International. I was the director of the National HIV Response targeting people who inject drugs for Thailand. Did that work for five years. And after that project closed, I went back to consulting and I've been a consultant ever since. 
when I started to study about Kratom, one of the first videos I saw was uh, you talking to Hamilton Morris about Kratom in uh, Thailand. Kratom just became legal in Thailand. I guess just what led up to the legalization in Thailand, because Kratom was traditionally used there and it was outlawed uh, in the 1940s, I think. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, Kratom was made illegal in the 1940s because... Uh, at the time, you have to understand that the Thai government still had legal uh, drugs like opium and heroin were being sold in pharmacies, and that represented a significant revenue for the state. About some estimates range between 8 and 20% of the national revenue was generated off the sales of legal opium through government outlets. So when people started using Kratom, it meant a significant loss of revenue for the government. So they made Kratom illegal in 1942 to protect the opium market, essentially. Uh, and drugs stayed legal in Thailand for a long, long time. It wasn't until 1959 that they made opium and heroin illegal, and then other drugs followed suit in the following 10 years. So by 1959, uh, Thailand had essentially caught up to the rest of the world in terms of adhering to, let's say, the international drug control conventions that are uh, shepherded, let's say, by the United, Na United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. So the kind of international framework that makes all drugs illegal. Um, at, at that stage, Kratom was still illegal, but it wasn't enforced because now that, you know, heroin and opium had become illegal there was no more reason to police kratom it wasn't only it was wasn't until 2003 or thereabouts uh, when the prime minister taksin shinawatra declared a bloody war on drugs that led to the extrajudicial killing of over 2000 people suspected of being involved in the drug trade which were mostly petty users and small time dealers that were extrajudicially assassinated by police forces across the country. At that point, then the police restarted focusing arrests on Kratom and a number of arrests increased uh, gradually and radically over the next 15 years. Uh, throughout that period, so since 2000, the early 2000s up until recently, there were several attempts to decriminalize Kratom because many, uh, many communities in Thailand are indeed using Kratom and they've been using Kratom since the earliest that I was able to find was officially was uh, in 1650s that people have been using Kratom without much problems for traditional purposes and for medicinal purposes. So the, the different proposals went uh, in different directions proposing to you know, alleviate some of the laws, decriminalize, legalize, uh, promote for market, promote for market for export, for local use, for medicinal use. And none of that really worked up until recently, as you pointed out, it's just in the past few months that uh, Kratom has been made, has been decriminalized in Thailand. So it's not entirely legal, mm. uh, it, but it has been decriminalized. Uh, to the point where we have a big, uh, big superstore uh, grocery store chain here called Big C, and uh, now Kratom is available at Big C in the produce section.
Wow. So you can buy five leaves for 75 baht, which is the equivalent of about uh, $2, two, two, two bucks 50 in the US. So five leaves, two bucks 50, fresh leaves. Mind you, not sure to what extent the alkaloids, what the supply <laughs> chain is like. So uh, whether the alkaloids have survived the trip to the grocery store shelves <laughs> is not clear. But you know that it is available for public consumption with virtually no regulation. Although from what I understand, that wasn't the original intent. The original intent of the decriminalization was really to join the let's say the bandwagon where they can produce and export Kratom to get in on the gravy train and make some money out of this. You say it's decriminalized, but I, I usually think of this criminalization as means if you get caught with illicit drugs, then you might only get like a fine or something, but it actually can be sold there. Yeah, I, I was quite surprised by that because what I was reading, I was doing some reading today to catch up and prepare. Essentially, you know, the, the there's essentially three, largely three models for uh, control or regulation of Kratom. One is completely legal. For example, in the Netherlands or Germany, people can possess uh, and advertise and sell with no penalties. Uh, there's models like the U.S. where it's partially legal and depending on the states where, where you are and where it's just outright banned, like in Singapore, where possession and sale are strictly prohibited. So there and where even the, the alkaloids that are found in Kratom are also prohibited and controlled. So there's different models. And from what I had initially understood, it seemed to be that Thailand was going for partial legalization or decriminalization. So it was mostly intended to be production for export. So a similar model than in, uh, in Indonesia with some exceptions for uh, medicinal use and traditional use. Uh, however, it, it seems that they've gone a bit further. There, uh, there's a model that has been piloted since about 2016 for community control. So there's some communities that have been able to establish a kind of community charter where uh, community members are in control of the uh, in that, that charter, they specify, for example, how many, how many trees a household can possess, how they can dispose of the leaves, what they can do with the leaves, uh, if they can dispose of trees, uh, if they can prepare, make decoctions or this, this, uh, this uh, decoction called uh, four times 100, which in mm -hmm. Thai is called Sikun Roy. Uh, sometimes that's not allowed, but uh, the chewing of the leaves is allowed. So, for example, that pilot, which was done in one of the southern provinces, which seemed to have been very successful, allowed four trees per household or three or four trees per household. Uh, people were only allowed to consume the leaves, the fresh leaves, so no decoctions. And they set age limits for, uh, I think it was 18 years of age for young people not to have access to the Kratom. And it was supposed to be for medical purposes or for traditional use. So it wasn't purely for recreational use to get high. That was kind of still frowned upon. And it was community enforced. So it wasn't that the police came in and arrested people. So that's also a model of decriminalization. There's still some controls that are in place, but there's still, uh, there's 
more tolerance and flexibility at the community level for how Kratom is used and managed. Is there still like an illicit Kratom market? In the Hamilton video, and this was from, this came out like uh, in 2017, but Hamilton's uh, film crew was showing how people were just poaching the trees from the forest and I, and I notice in my Google news alerts that people are still being arrested in Thailand f- for having kratom so is that um, slowing down because of the decriminalization um, from the evidence that I've seen recently there has been hasn't been much change in the number of people who are arrested. I think there's been a decrease in the number of people who are prosecuted. So the police are still arresting people. Uh, also, Thailand has a very uh, strange, let's say, a very strange approach to drug law enforcement, where police salaries are extremely low. Police are very much underpaid here. Mm-hmm. So they they receive a financial incentive for arrests. Uh, especially for drug-related arrests. So there's a real incentive for the police to go out and arrest people who are involved in any kind of drug trade, whether it's users or dealers. And obviously users are easier to nab than uh, big-time producers or traffickers. So the police target their efforts on young people, vulnerable people who are visible and easy to catch. Kratom helps them earn and supplement their income like any other drug-related arrests. So police here get something like, it's, uh, what was it, 100 baht, so about three, 300 baht. So before, they get about $10 for every arrest that they make that's drug-related. They also get a financial incentive for seizures. So for example, for methamphetamine pills, they'll get one baht, so the equivalent of three cents for every pill that is seized. Um, and that, that's, there's a, in the equation that they use, there's a, a first step that police have quotas as well. So a police mm-hmm. officer working a specific beat will have a, a, a quota of drug-related arrests that they must make per month. So for example, I'm a cop in Thailand, my quota is 50, I need to get, do 50 arrests for drug-related issues in the next month. Uh, every time, that after I meet my quota, every arrest on top of the quota, that's when I get my financial incentive. So again, there's a real, mm-hmm. there's real demand for going out and arresting people. And again, targeting users is very easy. And that's why you still see a lot of arrests. However, given the, the for Kratom, but given that the law has changed recently, then when it gets to court, often the charges either get dropped or uh, not prosecuted or you know, some settlement out of court happens. That's not quite clear, but the data shows that the number of people who are prosecuted for Kratom-related possession have, has decreased in recent months. You've written about the drug policy in Thailand, and it seems to have been um, pretty oppressive. You've written about forced rehabilitation centers. Sometimes when we think about drug courts, that's, we think of it's like a harm reduction measure because you're not putting people in jail. But these rehabilitation centers are kind of like jails, aren't they? Yeah, in a way, they're kind of worse than jails. Oh, okay. So at the point of arrest, when, it, when a police officer arrests 
someone for a drug-related charge in Thailand, usually they, they'll get a urine test. And if they test positive, that means they have used drugs and that can be used as evidence that they have consumed drugs. The police officer will usually give, depending on the quantity involved, if there is, you know, there's possession, not just a positive urine test, but if there is a small quantity and a positive urine test or just a positive urine test, then the police officer will give the individual a choice of going to a rehabilitation center or going through the criminal justice system. So going through the criminal justice system means that, you know, they'll, they'll go to uh, police holding, then they'll get a lawyer, then they, they'll go to trial, then, you know, the, uh, the sentences are quite severe indeed. Like for, there was a famous case of a young woman who was arrested with one methamphetamine tablet and was sent, sentenced to 25 years in a prison here in Thailand. So the, the sentences are pretty drastic, wow. very, very small quantities. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people, when they are offered the chance to go to a rehabilitation center instead of taking their chance with the criminal justice system, they jump at the chance. However, when people sign up for that process, they forego the due process. They do not have access to a lawyer. There's no parole. Uh, their chances of being released depends on uh, a single person, often a single person or a small committee that is anonymous that decides whether the person has, you know, beaten their addiction or it, whether they are ready to reintegrate society. There's no, there's very li limited oversight and transparency in regards to those decisions. And very often, some of those decisions are not even made by medical professionals. So in that sense, people can end up, you know, being arrested, choosing to go to a rehab center for six months, but they end up staying there for six years. And again, there's, and they have to pay out of their own pocket for some of the services that they avail themselves while they are in detention. And there's you know, a huge miasma of human rights abuses that happens in these, uh, these rehabilitation centers. Uh, that's, that have been extensively documented by organizations like Human Rights Watch. So it, it's, it's sometimes potentially even worse to end up in one of these rehab centers compared to going to prison. At least in prison, you might have a long sentence, but you still have some support with due process, parole, uh, pardons, etc. that are possibly accessible to people with uh, small, with limited charges. And since they've recently decriminalized um, cannabis and, and kratom in Thailand, is, is that a signal that the policies are switching from punitive to more harm reductionist? No, <laughs> not really. No. Uh, it, it, it's, um, yeah, on, on the surface, I could see why it would make sense. But the, the interest here is not, the, the, the interest of the Thai government here is not really, uh, they, they don't have the interest of people who use these substances at heart or mm. people who need them for medical purposes. The real interest, but the, the, I think there's two compelling drivers or motivations for the Thai government to have decriminalized kratom and cannabis. Uh, the first one, and I'm not judging which one is most important than the other, uh, there's been a big push in the past few years to decarcerate. So the Thais, Thailand's prison system is overcrowded. Prisons are at over 200% capacity, have been for several years. 
most people who are in prisons, like 70 to 80 percent of people who end up in prisons are there because of drug related charges. So their, their interest is to reduce their prison population as quickly as possible because prisons are extremely costly, mm-hmm. even though the conditions are horrendous here and the services are very, very limited. It's still a, a heavy financial burden for the government to maintain this overcrowded prison system. The second one is kind of related. Uh, it, it's purely financial. It's, you know, they, they can see that there's a, a gold mine. There's a lot of money to be made in selling Kratom overseas and producing cannabis and selling it. And, you know, especially with COVID, the economy here has been heavily impacted negatively by COVID. Mm-hmm. I think they're pretty desperate to make a buck pretty much anywhere that they can. And I think that's also driving. So even before before COVID, before the economy had been heavily negatively impacted, there's a major drive to join in the market and create benefits for create financial benefits for society. Recently, I I wrote an article about cannabis cannabis legalization Mm -hmm. and what was driving this. And indeed, when I I did like a media analysis, look through, you know, several dozens of newspaper articles. And when there's a testimony from the government, when there's an article published, they're usually about cannabis legalization in Thailand, it usually ends up being in the financial sections, not in the health section, not in the social section. Mm -hmm. And the quotes from the government are usually, we decriminalize because we're going to make money. So they're pretty open and direct about their motivations for decriminalization or legalization of cannabis. They're interested in making money out of this. They, They see that it's a large untapped market. They have the resources, they have a a heavily agrarian society that is good for cultivating, they've got rich fertile soil, Uh, they're ready to produce. Uh, One of the interviews that I watched with the director of the Office of the Narcotics Control Board here was also saying very clearly, we decriminalize cannabis, it's to make money, we are not changing our drug policies, This, this drug will remain illegal for, uh, for for personal and recreational consumption. This is purely for medical purposes to make it available for patients who are suffering and to cover some of our costs. Okay, so it seems like they're kind of following what Indonesia has done because I think there's still criminal penalties for certain um, use of uh, Kratom in Indonesia. Is that is that right, Do you know? That's right. The way I understand it is that in Indonesia, the BNN, so their Narcotics Control Board, has allowed production for export, but local consumption and use of Kratom is still criminalized and punishable through the criminal justice system. And what about um, American businesses? Are, are there like investors in Thailand already uh, wanting to uh, set up Kratom market in, in Thailand and maybe uh, buy up some farms or deal with farmers there already? Uh, I'm, I'm not too sure about okay. what the situation is regarding Kratom, but certainly in terms of cannabis, when the Thai government announced that they would be producing cannabis for medical purposes, they received hundreds of proposals from investors from across the world, especially from the US, from Japan, Mm -hmm. from Canada, uh, and other countries 
to establish partnerships, to buy land, to buy farms. Uh, however, the Thai government generally is quite protectionist. Mm-hmm. So they have very protectionist policies. They do not sell their land to foreigners. They do not uh, even partnerships, as I understand it, are very, very difficult to establish for these kinds of projects. So it, there might be a similar kind of interest from uh, foreign investors. But from what I understand, the government is very, very reluctant to engage with foreign countries and foreign business owners in terms of, for, for, at least for, for cannabis. And I imagine that that's mirrored for Kratom as well. So I think they, they will want to maintain control, maintain their interest, protect their interests by retaining full control over the market as it develops here. I, I really do not see very strong partnerships with American businesses. If there is a partnership, it'll be we'll produce and you'll buy our stocks. But to get into the production, I think the production will 100% rest squarely in the hands of Thai people, Thai businesses, and the Thai government. This is kind of a philosophical question, but why do you think governments continue with uh, punitive uh, measures to try to solve drug problems? It doesn't really seem to have any benefit for anybody but the law enforcement agencies, um, and and I, I don't know why that's enough for them to keep these policies going. Uh, why do you, wh- what do you think their uh, motivations are? Well, there's uh, there's certainly a motivation, uh, a financial motivation. You know, and, you know, I, I come back to that, but I recently did some some research about mapping the flow of funding for the drug response in Thailand, whether it's be whether it be from the criminal justice system or for public health, and you know, it, it's pretty clear that there's there's huge investments and moving from a punitive approach to, let's say, a human rights approach or a public health approach in terms of managing drug issues would represent a significant, would create a significant impact for for the country. So in Thailand, what I found was that the annual budgets for key aspects of drug control were totaled in, in U.S. dollars. Uh, let me see. I've got this in U.S. dollars. So the total for in 2019, what I found was close to two billion dollars. So 1.77 billion dollars in 2019. That covered the Royal Thai Police, the Office of the Narcotics Control Board the courts, the prisons, and the probations department. And that's only for drug cases. It's not entire police force, the entire court system. These are explicitly and specifically for drug-related cases. So that's $2 billion worth of jobs and positions and people with influence and power that would suddenly lose that influence, that power, that revenue. So that, that, that represents, you know, a lot, and especially yeah. again in in Thailand, in Southeast Asia, the drug control apparatus, the police force, is heavily militarized. And, you know, I think you can relate to that being from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that, that also means that there's a lot of vested power in the ministries of justice and the police force, and 
losing that revenue would also mean that they would lose that influence internally. So other ministries might become more powerful and more influential if they lost control over drugs. Now, you know, I, I worked with, uh, when I was the director of the National HIV Response for people who inject drugs here, um, worked very closely with some individuals within the Ministry of Public Health, and there was always a reluctance on their part to challenge anyone from the Ministry of Justice, because justice had, you know, so much more power and influence. Suddenly shifting the drug control response from a criminal justice response to a public health response would significantly upset the balance. So maybe not that entire $1.7 billion would shift into the Ministry of Public Health and its affiliate organizations, but certainly a significant proportion of that $1.7 billion would shift over to other ministries. So that, that's, that's a huge loss so I think just that means that the status quo is likely to prevail for a long, long time, even as governments increasingly recognize that, you know, the criminal justice approach has not been particularly effective, that there are better ways, more effective ways of dealing with drug-related issues. However, making that structural change and impacting powerful people powerful people's pockets and budgets will take a long, long time to materialize, in my opinion. And do you think there's any truth to the idea that pharmaceutical companies want to control these drugs um, so they can monopolize them? Like, for example, Kratom, there's potential in it to be developed into a drug to treat opiate withdrawal. Do you think that there's a benefit to control uh, Kratom for Big Pharma? Um, certainly, I think they're, they're, Big Pharma is paying very close attention to what's happening in, in let's say, the, the plant-based sector to see where they can find their new pills that they can sell, certainly. But I think even more importantly is that the pharmaceutical companies have a vested interest in avoiding that kratom that is grown on you know someone's land can end up in the hands of someone that will use it and treat themselves so that they won't need to go to the pharmaceutical company or the pharmacy mm -hmm. to get their drugs that they produce so it's not necessarily that pharmaceutical companies want kratom to you know, extract mitrogene and transform it into this new magic pill i think what they're mostly afraid of is that Kratom is in competition with their market and will reduce the sale of their products, like whether it be methadone or buprenorphine or naltroxone or whatever other drug that they are peddling to you know, solve health issues. Uh, I, I've heard that people use Kratom to manage their diabetes and their glaucoma and uh, other issues. So it's not just for drug dependence that Kratom is potentially effective. There's a whole range of health issues for which people generally use drugs, medicines that could be substituted with a cheaper natural alternative. And I think that scares pharmaceutical company a whole lot more than their interest in acquiring and controlling the, the Kratom market. 
I was just interested if people in Thailand use kratom mostly medicinally or for pleasure, like with the four by a hundred consumption, or kind of like a, a lot of people drink coffee. Yeah, so the, the data that I've seen recently suggests that most people use kratom for medicinal purposes and for um so for medicinal purposes, that's a large group of people. So for to manage their diabetes, their glaucoma, or other health issues, to wean themselves off alcohol, tobacco, drug dependence, and use, uh, certainly. Uh, there's another group of people who use it to work in the fields. So um, Kratom has both uh, an algesic and a stimulant property, alkaloids that produce analgesic and stimulant effects. And people will use that when they go work in the fields, like in the rubber fields or in the rice fields, so that they can work longer hours in harsh conditions and, you know, have less physical pain or you know, physical discomfort from their physical labor. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's certainly another large group. And there's an overlap between especially the group that uses it for work purposes with some who use it for who use it recreationally. So in southern Thailand, where kratom trees is indigenous and where it's uh, most often used, I would say, um, some of these workers and other people use it socially. So they'll go to a coffee shop in the morning and uh, you know, chat politics. And as they're chatting politics, the coffee shop owner will place a basket of fresh, fresh kratom leaves, uh, kind of like, you know, we, we get uh, peanuts at a bar, essentially. So people munch on the leaves as they are talking and they drink their coffee or their tea before they head off to work. So it's generally socially acceptable for people to do that in community settings in the deep south of Thailand. And that would kind of constitute, in my opinion, some traditional use. Uh, I, I've seen it when I was in southern Thailand doing kratom research. I've seen it used in um, puppet shows. So there's these puppeteers who work late at night. They do uh, shadow puppets. Yeah. And the shadow puppeteers are especially famous for their use of kratom because they need to stay up late to perform their shows and to rehearse. So they, they use Kratom as well. And most recently, there's this other group who has emerged, who are the younger teenagers, youngsters, youth who will get some Kratom leaves, boil that in water to make kind of a tea or a decoction. You mix that in with ice cubes, Coca-Cola and cough syrup, and they drink that to you know, for recreational purposes to get high, essentially. Uh, I, I've also seen people who drink the tea unadulterated with other substances to manage their health symptoms. Mm -hmm. But the most commonly when you hear of the sequin loy, this four times 100, the four stands for the four ingredients, the kratom, boiled kratom leaves, the Coca-Cola, the ice, and the cough syrup. So the base formula are these ingredients that make up the sequin loy. And that has unfortunately attracted a lot of negative attention, a lot of stigma and discrimination, similar to not quite as much, but similar to the stigma and discrimination that's associated with ICE users or crystal methamphetamine users in Thailand, which are very much frowned upon. 
So these youngsters end up, you know, getting high in rubber plantations. They drink their their sikurloi, their katam decoction, and there's rarely any kind of negative impact relating to that. But in society's eyes, that is frowned upon, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because, you know, again, there's very limited negative health or social impacts from using kratom, whether it be in, in fresh leaf form for chewing or in this tea preparation. The biggest harms related to the use of sequin loy, in my opinion, and based on the research that I've done, is the additives. So people mix that in with cough serum that contains either dextromethorphan or uh, codeine. Mm. And obviously those substances are addictive and potentially dangerous. But, you know, these are supposed to be controlled substances, controlled products that are sold in pharmacies with prescription. But again, instead of going after the pharmacist, who sell cases of uh, cough syrup, literally cases of cough syrup over the counter to youngsters. They choose to go after the youngsters and demonize this you know, concoction. Again, instead of going after the, in my opinion, the real criminals who are the pharmacists who try to make money off these young people trying to get high. So if there were better controls on pharmacy sales here and it's not like in in the US or Canada pharmacy sales here are technically regulated but they're not always enforced so that means that you know one of the interviewees one of the respondents to my research was saying you know that you know he goes into you know, once a week he goes to the pharmacy and buys you know a case of 24 24 bottles of cough syrup, <laughs> pays the pharmacist, walks out. And obviously the pharmacist knows. Another one was saying, yeah, I, you know, the, the pharmacist doesn't care. He knows that I'm doing this, but he doesn't care. And then he goes, oh, well, actually, that's not true. He kind of cares because, you know, every time he sees me, he hikes up the price and double the price from 40 baht a bottle to 80 baht a bottle. So again, the it's a bit strange to me that the... The focus on society is on these the, the, the people who drink the sequin loy and not on the pharmacists who are supposedly medical professionals, but who enable and abet this kind of behavior. But we don't talk about that here. We only talk about you know, these youngsters who drink sequin loy. And I think me, the media has played a huge part in the demonization of young people who are drinking this kratom decoction in linking the use of sikun loy with being Muslim insurgents. So in the southern provinces of Thailand, there's a separatist movement. So the people in the three southernmost provinces of Thailand, they are majority Muslim and they're on the border with Malaysia. They would like to separate, either to join Malaysia or to have more independent control from the centralized government of Thailand. Mm -hmm. So they want to separate. And there's been a lot of insurgency over the years to separate. Um, the, the media has linked the use of Sikun Loi with this insurgency movement. Again, I think that's false. That's propaganda. And it's used... Uh, and the reason why I think it's propaganda is when I talked to some of the insurgent groups when I was in the Deep South, they were explicit that they recruit people who are not using drugs. And if they find anyone using any kind of drug, including Kratom, they are kicked out of the movement. 
Mm. So they, they are very, very strict about accepting no one who is involved in the drug trade in their insurgency movement. Mm. However, having media reports enables the government, it facilitates the government, especially the police, to obtain warrants to search suspected insurgents by saying, ah, this person uses sequinoid, they must be an insurgent, then we can get a warrant and search their premises. Whereas if they were just, you know, using any other type of drug, it might not, might not allow access to a warrant to search their premises. So I, I think there is, again, political motivation in how the government has linked Sikun Loy or this Kratom decoction with the insurgency movement. It allows them to broaden police powers in the Deep South, which is a contested zone. Researchers who wanted to research Kratom, at least before decriminalization, had to obtain their samples uh, illegally. With uh, decriminalization, are there plans for expanded Kratom research in Thailand? Yes, that, that's already been piloted, I think, since uh, 2016. In parallel with that initiative I was talking about earlier, where there is this community control. So the, okay. this was set up in one province, in, let's say one, one area of the province. And the, the special Kratom region has better access for research as well. So uh, uh, academics, researchers, pharmacologists can get their Kratom more easily with fewer hassles, with fewer permissions, so that they can conduct the research to accelerate the production of evidence to make effective decisions regarding both policy and practice regarding Kratom. Yes, that has improved, but indeed, when in 2011, when I was in the Deep South, I went to the Prince of Songkhlai University and talked to a young PhD student who was doing research on Kratom, and he was, you know, dismayed that he had to you know, go to drug dealers to get his kratom to do his research because the procedure that to, to allow him access needed to, was centralized so that he would apply to the Office of Narcotics Control Board in his province, which would be sent to Bangkok to the central office. Then they would it would take you know potentially weeks or months to get the approval, and by that time the kratom that he gets, the alkaloids have all. You know, dissipated. The, the alkaloids and kratom don't stay in the leaf very long. So if the the, the 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 leaf is not managed properly, by the time that the researcher gets the product, the alkaloids might have faded or dissipated, uh, and the product is essentially worthless for research purposes. We talked about reasons for use, and and I know a lot of people use it for uh, coming off of uh, uh, heroin. And I'm just wondering if there's any effort to actively introduce people to Kratom who are are um, addicted to stronger opiates uh, in Thailand or anywhere where you're where you're looking at this, like maybe by uh, community organizations. I, I know that there's some research going on about this in Thailand, but unfortunately, there, there's none of the civil society organization or the community-based organizations that I work with have introduced this. I think we are, uh, many of these organizations are essentially bound to promote services that ha are supported by evidence. 
So to pilot something that doesn't have you know endorsement from that, that there's no evidence for it, that there's not official endorsement by a UN agency is potentially problematic and could compromise access to funding uh, from foreign donors okay. or even local donors if they were to promote something that's not accepted. So um, I, I know that in in unofficially, individuals do do that mm -hmm. and there's enough of i think word of mouth in thailand and the region for people to know that they can get kratom to manage their withdrawal symptoms if they are dependent on substance however to my knowledge no organization is in a position to promote this as an official service at this time because again you know there's there would be too many risks I wanted to get your opinion of what do you think about some of the efforts in the United States, like the Kratom Consumer Protection Acts? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I, I think that you know, in 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 principle, the the Kratom Protection Acts is is largely a good thing, uh, in as much as it helps prevent a, a ban or criminalization of Kratom or a federal ban on Kratom. I think those are very good. I'm also in favor of some kind of regulatory system being put in place like for alcohol or tobacco that it doesn't end up in the hands of minors. It, you know, the product is labeled and there's been some analysis of content. I think in principle, that is good. However, I think that, you know, it, it could easily be used to against the for nefarious purposes, you know, if the government realizes that suddenly they can't control by criminalization, then they might use the Kratom Protection Acts and put requirements in there that are so onerous that it will be difficult to meet and therefore the product cannot be sold. So, for example, you know, if, if uh, the Kratom Protection Act includes clauses and requirements that are more strict or more severe than for products like alcohol and tobacco, which we know are a lot more, uh, carry a lot more potential for harm, then that, that would not be you know, in line with the intent of the Kratom Protection Act. But in principle, as much as they have been deployed so far, I am in favor. I, I, I do think it's a good idea. That being said, from the research I've done and all the evidence I've seen, Kratom is not harmful. You know, I, I get politically it makes sense to have a Kratom Protection Act to prevent the government from criminalizing Kratom and for the DEA to move in on this substance. That, that, that makes a lot of sense strategically. However, in an ideal world, we, we wouldn't need that because Kratom is not dangerous. So yeah. whether, you know, someone who's 16 or 14 or, you know, whatever age, they, they consume a couple of leaves of Kratom, it, it's not going to cause any real harm. Uh, I, I'm all for having some kind of regulation for to ensure that the product that people consume is safe in the sense that there's no mixed in adulterants, that the product product doesn't contain contaminants. I think that's that's very important. I don't think that's necessary in the US necessarily. I think that's more important for upstream in the supply chain. For example, most of Kratom in the US now comes from Indonesia. 
I think it's important for Indonesia to put in place some measures to control their supply chain and certify their product as safe and to have their analyses done to reassure customers abroad and even locally, if there are any, that the product is safe and does not contain adulterants. When I was uh, in 2018, I was working with a, a colleague from Oregon who was interested in exactly this, helping strengthen the supply chain in Indonesia. And we put in a proposal to develop uh, an evaluation assessment of what was going on in Indonesia to make formal recommendations on how to strengthen the supply chain. Uh, unfortunately, our project wasn't funded, but we did do quite a bit of research and what I saw in the videos, you know, the promotional videos from Indonesian Kratom producers was, you know, they, they do this in, you know, on their farm, in the garage, wherever. And there's, you know, chickens running around in the Kratom leaves that are drying. You know, and that means that they can do their business in the Kratom <laughs> leaves and that might cause salmonella. Yeah. So the Kratom itself is not dangerous, but the way that the supply chain is managed could potentially open up users to significant risk. So in that sense, I do think some regulation is needed. I don't think it should be in the US. I think that if the US is concerned about, the US government is concerned about the safety and security, uh, the health, safety and security of consumer consumers in the US, then they should exert pressure on Indonesia to deploy effective controls and certifications to ensure the quality of their product. Mm -hmm. So in the research that I was doing, we found that the World Health Organization in 2003, they released guidelines called Guidelines on Good Agricultural and Collection Practices for Medical Plants. And there's a certification program for this. So I think that that should be applied to the Kratom supply chain rather than, you know, using the, the stick, use the carrot to put better controls in place but not the, the stick where you punish people for using or making it a criminal substance. Mm -hmm. I think that's not the right strategy. There's a win-win opportunity here for both the Indonesian government producers and other producers in Southeast Asia to continue to sell their product, provided that they meet certain quality standards that will reassure authorities in foreign countries like the US, Canada, and Europe that the product that they are importing and using is safe and will not harm their citizens. I think that's a much better strategy than outright criminalization. There's still a lot of benefit for both for parties at both ends of the supply chain to benefit from an arrangement like this whereas criminalization benefits absolutely no one. And you were talking about, you know, Kratom is, you know, pretty safe as far as uh, substances like that go. Do you think there's any difference between consuming a lot of the dried substance like so, some Americans are doing and like the fresh leaf, like uh, the difference between chewing coca leaves and and extracted cocaine? I'll, I'll be careful here. So based on the evidence that I've reviewed, the medical evidence that I've reviewed, I was not able to find a single case of of 
deadly overdose of mm-hmm. kratom use in Thailand. And again, they've been using kratom for centuries here. Mm-hmm. And there was not a single case documented, medically documented case of a deadly overdose. There were some anecdotal reports of psychoses, let's say an overdose that leads to some kind of psychosis, a mental breakdown, but again, with some very, very mild symptoms with like disorientation, mild confusion, stomach aches, vomiting, nothing that was, you know, like worse than an indigestion, essentially. So, it, uh, and I, I don't want to say that consuming large quantities of Kratom is innocuous. Mm-hmm. I think that overconsumption of any substance carries risk. Mm-hmm. You know, people can die if they drink too much water. Mm-hmm. So water is a pretty benign substance that we absolutely need to survive. So I think, again, it, it's a matter of, um, it, it's a matter of being careful. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Kratom users that I met, I met some heavy Kratom users when I was doing my research in 2011 uh, some were using, you know, like 80 to 120 leaves a day, and they had been using for, you know, decades, and they were fine. So I, I don't want to say that that's going to be the case for everyone. I think that moderation for any substance that we consume is a lot healthier, carries less risk. Um, but again, I, I'm, I haven't seen any evidence that consumption in large quantities would result in any significant health risk. You work on uh, drug policy, harm reduction, and and you do a lot of that kind of advocacy. Um, Do you have any successful strategies or tips for somebody who wants to be uh, an advocate, uh, like perhaps a Kratom advocate, just in general, from your experience? Well, um, several things there. I think, first of all, it's it's always good to do advocacy. If you're doing advocacy on behalf of an interest group, to get down to the grassroots level and work with the users. I, I can't stress that enough. The importance of that is critical for successful advocacy, to be actually representative, to have that participatory a strategy to engage with Kratom users or drug users to achieve policy goals is absolutely critical. It's sometimes challenging, but it is absolutely worth bringing the users on board from the very beginning in the design of the strategy and the implementation of the strategy and the monitoring and the evaluation of that strategy as well. So I think that that's, that's very, very important. I, I also think that, you know, there, there's essentially two strategies that are, in my opinion, very complementary. So there's a lot of activists and there's advocates. So activists might be a bit louder and confrontational and, you know, kick doors in and be up in people's faces and very challenging. Uh, and they are needed. People who are activists are absolutely needed. Uh, to open those doors and initiate and put the issue on the agenda if it's not already on the agenda. Once the issue is on the agenda, uh, another group, the advocates, need to come in and work with the activists, but perhaps change the, the focus and change the lead and where the advocates negotiate, compromise, find common ground with decision makers, to come to a consensus and move things forward. Usually a consensus means that everybody who leaves the room is not happy. Nobody got exactly what they wanted, but we have progressed. We we moved forward and we've made progress for everyone. 
So I think that that's an important strategy is to decide if you're going to be an activist or you're going to be an act uh, an advocate and to work across those streams without competing or being frustrated that there are activists if you're an advocate or frustrated at the advocates if you're an activist. I think both need to work in tandem in joint strategies to be most effective. One last thing, follow the money. The money is usually where people will find a lot of evidence. It's a compelling, uh, compelling strategy to change people's minds if you have financial evidence, documented data about where the money goes, how much is being spent, that's sometimes a lot more compelling that, than uh, an emotional argument or uh, an argument based on your desires, your interests. Uh, financial interests usually trump, unfortunately, everything else. So following the money trail is very important. So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Thailand, right? So, and, and the U.S. But both, both countries operate, again, under these international treaties called the drug conventions, the international drug conventions. There are three of them that regulate essentially drug markets. So from medicines to illicit drugs are regulated under these three treaties. These treaties are essentially managed by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. And there's been growing interest in Kratom because uh, there, there's been emergence on uh, in, in the drug policy sphere the, about these new psychoactive substances. And new doesn't necessarily mean that they're new because they were just produced or they were just found. It means new in terms of their emergence and their preeminence on the market. So Kratom has been included in these new psychoactive substances. And the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime has been able to kind of maneuver Kratom into that um, into that group by essentially largely exaggerating the risks relating to um, the, the the use of kratom. Mm -hmm. So, for example, they they produced a report that showed that. Uh, let me find it exactly here. I'm scanning through my document. So they they showed essentially that you know that there was. They had a graph in one of these reports about emergence. It's a, a network called Early Warning Advisory System mm -hmm. for New Psychoactive Systems. That was set up specifically to track you know, emerging sub new psychoactive substances that could potentially cause a threat. And you know they, they made specific recommendations on Kratom. Now, in their reports, in UNODC's early warning advisory report, they cited Kratom and they included this graph that showed that Kratom essentially Kratom focused prominently in one of the updates that came out in 2020. It included a graph that was titled uh, New Psychoactive Substances Detected in Fatalities Reported to the United, United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime Early Warning Advisory in 2019. This graph showed that 46% of reported fatalities were related to Kratom, which is huge, even more than synthetic opioids, which was 17%. So that graph showed, you know, like Kratom is 
significantly dangerous. However, there was like a little asterisk somewhere in the test. The text explained that there was 47 cases, all reported from the U.S. and Thailand, and where you know th there's millions of Kratom users in both of these countries. Mm -hmm. So 46% is not 46% of the people who are using Kratom. Yeah. And on top of that, there was a note that said that I, the identification of Kratom did not necessarily mean that it was causal to the death of the person that was reported. So essentially, they also clarified that there were no cases in which Kratom was deemed to have caused or have significantly contributed to death. Yeah. So again, UNODC has positioned visually a graph in their early warning reports to say like, ooh, be scared, be scared. <laughs> and it, essentially, there's nothing there. Yeah, so they, they created this false threat. And again, I'm sorry to repeat this, but if you follow the money, the United Nations on Drugs and Crime has been struggling to find funding for itself. So the creation of a new threat allows them to mobilize resources from governments and to convince them, look, there's this threat here, Kratom, give us money so that we can fight this threat, which is not, which is a non-starter because it's not a threat. So again, it's, it's very important to understand like the global context when, when we work on, you know, Kratom in a specific legislation or a specific jurisdiction, whether it be at state level or at country level, it's really important to understand what's going on internationally because th this helps frame the discourse and the, the ideas and the arguments that we want to bring about when we do our advocacy work mm -hmm. to try and convince governments. If we show that this is not a threat, that there is no evidence that there are fatalities or dangers relating to Kratom, then that becomes essentially moot. Now, Kratom is scheduled to go through this expert committee on drug dependence for yeah. review. I believe this year, mm -hmm. and they are essentially supposedly a panel of medical professionals who will look at the evidence and could make a set of recommendations. Uh, essentially, there's four, let's say, largely poten large potential outcomes. So the uh, expert committee might decide not to proceed with a critical review, so that you know it would because there's insufficient evidence of any harms. And then, you know, that, that's it. It wouldn't get scheduled in the international conventions as a dangerous drug for international control, where member states of the UN are mandated to put in laws to criminalize that substance. They could also decide to undertake a critical review that might lead to scheduling or not. And then there's some it depends in which convention it might end up being scheduled. So if it ends okay. up being in one of the, the 1961 conventions, then that would mean that all countries would have to criminalize the plant and the alkaloids. Mm -hmm. If it was in the 1971 convention, then there could be exemptions for fresh leaves, but ban on the alkaloids, uh, like let's say the, the, yeah, the alkaloids, so that, that would be a bit tricky. And at the end of the day, there's potential for them to say that you know, it needs to be regulated under international control through the conventions and force all countries 
to decide to, to criminalize the, the plant and the alkaloids. So there's still a, a lot of options and advocates who are involved in negotiating, advocating for Kratom decriminalization and regulation should be very mindful of the decision of this expert committee that will come out in the next few months, I believe. So I think this is an important step in the, the battle or the, the engagement on Kratom that we are seeing globally. I think this decision has a big chance of influencing even national or sub-national level advocacy work for regulation and decriminalization of Kratom. Yeah, and, and I mean, do you think they're likely to go back on it? Like, once these things are placed on that list, uh, do they usually go ahead and, and and recommend scheduling all the time, or or do they sometimes leave leave these things out? Because there was a, I think there was like seven substances this time, and uh, that they're considering for recommending uh, scheduling. Yeah, I, I think when, once things get into the, the conventions, they're very, very, very hard to remove. So the, the, these yeah. conventions aren't reviewed very often. And the, the committee that is involved in overseeing work on the conventions is very conservative. Uh, it, it's yeah. gotten better over time, but I believe that they're very, uh, very conservative. Uh, I think so the, that committee is part of the United Nations of on Drugs and Crime and their infrastructure. Mm. The expert committee is part of the World Health Organization. So the World Health Organization and UNODC are two separate organizations. Although they are both part of the United Nations system, they're two separate organizations. So the World Health Organization has a mandate to, to review, especially you know, medical health issues. Uh, and if they determine that it is up for scheduling, then it gets into the conventions which are managed by UNODC. And then okay. UNODC is in the Office on Drugs and Crime. They are special, like as a United Nations agency, most of the United Nations agencies have let's say, humanitarian assistance mandate. They're there to help. You know, UNAIDS is there to prevent and support HIV. Uh, UN Women is there to promote equality for women. UNICEF is there to protect children, uh, etc. ILO, the International Labor Organization, is there to promote workers' rights. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime is very unique in the UN family because their mandate is not humanitarian assistance. Their mandate is law enforcement. Yeah. They're there to their members, their people that they talk to are cops, their ministries of justice, their police, their investigators. They're not there to help drug users. They're not there to stop the spread of HIV. They're there to empower and enforce, you know, cryptocurrency, anti-terrorism, uh, drug control, etc. So they're there for cops, for legal purposes, to reinforce and improve criminal justice systems, essentially. So it would be, again, it's, it's to their advantage if Kratom ends up in the conventions because it gives them more broader power and that yeah. means they can mobilize more resources to ensure the survival of their organization. So that there's there's... A, Essentially, in my opinion, there's kind of a conflict of interest there that the fortunately they're not on the expert committee that will decide whether they go in the conventions or not, if whether Kratom goes in the conventions or not. But if it does, 
then it's, it's essentially squarely in their hands. And that's why the committee that oversees the conventions is very conservative because it's part of UNODC infrastructure. And therefore they don't have much interest in saying, no, this drug is no longer a threat. No, we, we can decriminalize that, it's fine. Well, you know, many countries have decriminalized cannabis, cannabis still in the conventions. Yeah. Because again, the, the, the committee that oversees the conventions is, doesn't have interest in descheduling cannabis. It will reduce their power. It's, so it, it, it's, not, it's not a good idea for them to do that, right? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So it's, um, if it does end up there, it would give already UNODC a lot more power. And they already have, because of this early warning system on new psychoactive substances, the fact that they've included Kratom in there, they've essentially manufactured the threat where there is none. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm, I'm using Noam Chomsky's language about manufacturing consent, consent but in here yeah. they've manufactured a threat. Mm. And there's an organization called the Transnational Institute that's based in the Netherlands that have essentially published a paper just recently, uh, about a month ago, called Kratom, the creation of a threat, which is exactly about this, how UNODC has manufactured this, you know, threat around Kratom when there is none. So it's an important document. And that that points also to this process of approval by the expert committee. Yeah, yeah, and and I'll uh, actually put the link in the description for people who want to read that, and I have read it. And media sensationalism, I mean, talking about manufacturing a threat, I mean, we people who listen to the United States understand, uh, especially about Kratom, the, there's just television, evening news, media, and drugs is just not a place to go for accurate information. It's more like a horror fiction, uh, drug horror fiction, I call it. But does that also go on in Thailand? And is it does it happen with Kratom? And are do the public buy it since it's such a traditional um, plant there? Yeah. So it, yes, it certainly does happen in Thailand. Unfortunately, it happens especially around this uh, sequin loy, the decoction, the boiled Kratom leaves mixed in with a cough syrup. So there's been a whole lot of demonization around that, and again, that they link that in the media to insurgency. So people do buy that because, you know, the majority of Thailand is uh, of Thai citizens are Buddhist and there's a small minority of Muslims. And, you know, people are aware of the world that we live in. And there's you know been significant demonization of Muslims all over the world. So that kind of reinforces the fear uh, around Muslim people that they are also, you know, using these drugs and, you know, that, that all gets kind of mashed together in these stereotypes of dangerous Muslim insurgents who are high on drugs. You know, it it just accentuates people's fears. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a a, a wave of unexplained deaths in northern Thailand in Chiang Mai. Uh, Several tourists died Mysterious, certain mysterious circumstances in hotel rooms, mostly in Thailand, some in the south as well on the island, the party islands like uh, Kopangan and whatnot. So th- there was uh, uh, at that point when it was still unexplained, there were investigations that were going on, especially from the countries from where these citizens uh, were from. 
including from Canada. There were two young girls from Canada that died. Uh, I was actually contacted by the National Coroner of Canada uh, to discuss what had potentially happened because the Thai government had attributed these strange deaths to consumption of kratom. And, you know, that, that kind of made waves in local media as well. You know, they were saying that, you know, it's, uh, it's not murders. It's not anything we did. You know, it's that these crazy tourists, they come here, they take drugs, and then they die mysteriously in their hotel rooms. And obviously, that was not the case. In the end, it was, you know, something else. It was uh, uh, insecticides and pesticides that had been oversprayed in some of these hotels that uh, are frequently used by tourists. Uh, and the tourists just suffocated and died. But the Thai government went forward and said publicly, and even to authorities of like the National Corner of Canada, there were some Australians that died as well, and they blamed the individuals and said that they had been using Kratom and that's why they died. <laughs> Which again, doesn't really <laughs> gel with the evidence because again, yeah. there's been not a single case, at least in Thailand, but to my knowledge, there has not been a single case of medically, forensically documented Kratom leading to a death here. So it would have been pretty surprising that, you know, suddenly there's a wave of, you know, in one year, 13 foreigners from six different countries who die because they, they had too much Kratom. So that, that, you know, didn't make sense. But it was certainly played out like that in the media. And I don't think they ever issued a correction to say, well, actually, it wasn't Kratom. It was, you know, pesticides. Yeah. <laughs> so people are left with the idea that, you know, these 13 foreigners mysteriously died because they took too much Kratom. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, kind of like the media here, it's like more profitable to just scare people rather than do good journalism and uh, does that go on there or I, I know that in Thailand there are some um, uh, speech restrictions um, but um, is there is there a threat to journalists if they speak against uh, the official uh, narrative on on Kratom or anything else there I don't think so. I mean, there's certainly some limitations and some laws that uh, prevent journalists from saying some things, but it's generally mostly related to the monarchy. So um, there's less majesty's laws that prevent any kind of uh, disparaging of the monarchy, of the king. So, uh, But in the case of Kratom, no, I think there's there's pretty... There's some pretty open journalists, but unfortunately, there's also more sensationalist journalists out there. And as yeah. you said, you know, it pays well to scare people, and you know, a scared population is easier to control and to manipulate. So, I think there's just generally an interest in you know selling these kinds of bad news than saying that you know kratom is inoffensive and can actually be a, a boon for a lot of people who are sick and need it. That's less newsworthy than saying, you know, this tourist has died because they ate too much kratom leaves. The, the, there's more and more openness about discussions on, uh, uh, on reforming drug policies in Thailand, especially, as I mentioned earlier, with this push for decarceration and reducing the prison population here. So there, there's been a lot of efforts to try and find solutions to that. That has included discussions around drug policy reform. So in 2016, there was this uh, minister of justice who was very, very bold, who suggested, you know, decriminalizing, legalizing, kratom, cannabis, 
even methamphetamines, you know, like he was tired of seeing the prison so filled with methamphetamine users. They said, you know, we'll decriminalize it. And, you know, shortly thereafter, he was moved out of his position. <laughs> so that didn't last long, but it was the first, you know, high level Thai official who went on record and said, you know, the war on drugs has failed. We have done a crappy job in Thailand. We need to find alternative solutions. We need to rethink the paradigm about how we manage drug related issues in our country. And, you know, Let's consider all options, including decriminalization and legalization of some of these substances. Subsequently, I was hired as a consultant to work for uh, the NGO owned by one of the princesses of Thailand to evaluate the decriminalization models in uh, five European countries, kind of unpack the decriminalization models and see what components could apply to Thailand without, you know, upsetting the balance, let's say. And I, I, the, the report is online. I can send you a link if you're interested. Sure. Unfortunately, it was never really used by authorities because this report was meant to go to this uh, this very forward-thinking minister of justice named uh, Paibun Kumchaya. Unfortunately, like I said, he was moved to another office and the project kind of fell apart. The report was produced. I managed to get it out there, but it was never used for consideration of policy decisions here in Thailand. But again, at least it means that there is some openness. There's been more and more discussions on, you know, kratom, cannabis, and other drugs, and looking for alternatives. I think what we're uh, it, it's it's very slow. It's going to be a very slow process. But I, I do think that, you know, in the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years, we will see some changes in Thailand's drug policies. And Thailand is, you know, a central country in ASEAN, in Southeast Asia, mm. uh, in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. I, I do think that if they make decisions to decriminalize, to change their model, to change their paradigm, to introduce harm reduction, they stand to gain significantly in terms of showing leadership and being emulated by other countries. Uh, unfortunately, Thailand has been emulated by other countries in terms of their drug policy. Uh, the Filipino government has been implementing, uh, the Duterte government has been implementing a bloody war on drugs that has led to tens of thousands of people being extrajudicially executed by police yeah. forces. And the Duterte war on drugs is a copy-paste, identical model to the strategy that was used in 2003 by in Shinawatra when there was this bloody war on drugs here that I mentioned at the beginning of our interview. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, governments don't necessarily just pick up the good things, also pick up some <laughs> of the bad things. <laughs> and yeah, so, but again, I think that Thailand is moving away from these punitive approaches. It will take time before you know, drug policies are reformed and aligned with evidence and in line with good practices, like the harm reduction models that are happening in some of the European countries, like the Netherlands, Germany, Czech Republic, uh, Switzerland, etc. I think we're, we're still decades away from that, but there is openness and possibilities that weren't there 10 years ago when I started working, you know, even 20 years ago when I started working on drug related issues here. 
we've made some progress. There's been several steps back, but we've made some progress moving forward. So for, for that, I have to say that the Thai government has learned some lessons, but it's, it's a very slow learning curve. And what about Malaysia? Um, it seems like they made some moves, or um, I'm looking at an um, article from 2019 about Penang farmers wanting to cash in on uh, the Kratom crop. Um, I had Darshan Singh on the podcast, and at, the, at his university, uh, University Science Malaysia, they're doing a lot of really good Kratom research, and I know they'd love to see the research uh, be able to open up. Do you think uh, Malaysia is going to follow suit and uh, decriminalize Kratom? I, I mean, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, I, I think it will take time as well. Again, there's maybe significant conservative elements that are against uh, decriminalization of any kind of substance here. So in, in Malaysia, they've got a similar structure as in Thailand, where the anti-narcotics police, the AADK, and the national police are, are not really interested. They're very much against uh, decriminalization. But there's growing interest from academics, uh, civil society organizations, and even uh, medical professionals to uh, and, and uh, also um, agricultural groups to look at the potential for benefits, for financial benefits, for medical benefits that that would bring. So again, certainly if Thailand paves the way and does well with their Katam decriminalization, I think a lot of people in this region are looking, are keeping their eyes on Thailand, waiting with bated breath to see the results you know, if uh, crime increases or if there's any problems in the country, which I don't believe there will, but, you know, people will wait some time before making their own decisions. So that there is, there's certainly a possibility, though I wouldn't be holding my breath because it will take, you know, some time and talking potentially a few years before there's any kind of real movement to decriminalize. I know also that just last year or the year before, Indonesia was that there was a proposal to I think the, the Senate to criminalize once again the entire supply chain of kratom production that would have compromised access for the U.S. That was voted down, but you know th th there's always this push and pull in Southeast Asia around drugs, which is a central issue for virtually all parties that go for elections that vie for power. So in that sense, you know, we get more liberal government, there might be some changes. And then, you know, a couple of years later, there's a conservative government, we'll see that being undone and the changes reversed. So I, I think that we also have to expect that it's not going to be a clean trajectory towards decriminalization or legalization, whether it be for cannabis or kratom or other substances, there's going to be some move forward, some steps back. It's going to be more like a, a seesaw where we move up and down uh, across the timeline. And certainly, again, <clears throat> there, there's growing interest in the region to explore rescheduling of Kratom. And also, I believe that countries will, governments will have an easier time making decisions once the WHO expert committee makes its ruling on the dangerousness or the risks, the harms related to Kratom. Yeah, I, I guess that's going to be a make or break kind of decision. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a landmark thing, that's for sure. I mean, yeah. it's going to have far-reaching impact 
on producer countries and on consumer countries. So again, that's why I was saying earlier, this decision is going to be a critical aspect for any kind of advocacy work relating to Kratom. It's going to be a critical landmark event for good or for bad. You said going back to 1650, you found the use of Kratom. Does that come from uh, writings? And I know the botanist, uh, the Dutch botanist uh, found it in the 1830s or something like that. I'm just wondering about what evidence is there from 1650 that it was used. And has it it ever been like a religious or ceremonial thing? Because I've seen that in some reports, but I don't know how accurate that is. Yeah, I, I don't think it's been used in religious ceremonies. Yeah. It's been used for traditional purposes, certainly. Um, I've seen several reports that specifically say, that, well, that, that talk in general, that Kratom has been used for centuries, blah, blah, blah. So that, that that's pretty vague. Uh, yeah. I was reading this, uh, this scientific paper earlier today, and there was a specific reference to 1650. I could send you the title. I, I was able to download. It's a public uh, public document. So I, I found it says specifically, Kratom was referred to as a medicinal herb in Thai pharmacopias dating from 1650s, wow. as was in, and was indicated for the treatment of stomach aches, severe diarrhea, and opium withdrawal. And the mm-hmm. reference here is the Office of the Thai Traditional Medicine Wisdom Protection. The paper is by a, a research group in, based in Thailand that is also pushing for decriminalization. So TNI has referred to some of their, their reports. And this, this study was I was reading was specifically looking at attitudes towards decriminalization of Kratom and the community control model that I was talking about, that pilot that was uh, implemented to see if the community could regulate Kratom use and cultivation in their, uh, in their space. So it's an interesting paper for uh, if you want to download that. In some of the scientific studies, they've said that Thai Kratom contains maybe like 66% of mitragynine alkaloids and Malaysian only t- contains 12% and then they could barely find traces in the Philippines. Do you know anything about that, whether like Thai Kratom is uh, stronger or contains more uh, different alkaloid profile? Um, no, I, I'm I'm not uh, I, I'm I'm not sure about that. Honestly, okay. I, I will say that when I was doing my research down south, that the Kratom users were able to distinguish five different strains or subspecies of Kratom. So there was uh, the Mengda. Uh, the, uh, there was another one with that, which had like the, the the central stem on the leaf was kind of reddish. Uh, one was green, uh, so they, they were able to distinguish, and they had uh, some some anecdotal reports about you know this one is stronger than that one, this one uh, has more like analgesic properties, this one has more stimulant properties. At the time when I was doing that research, uh, I think the the access to kratom in Thailand was so limited that the pharmacolo- pharmacological studies around was rather limited. And my area of expertise is, although I'm interested in the pharmacology, it's not my primary area of expertise. So I wouldn't be able to comment with certainty about the, the, the content of one leaf over another. 
Uh, I, I do know that there there is likely to be variation in the mitrogene content, and all mm -hmm. the alkaloid content from country to country and region to region. That just has to do with weather patterns and uh, yeah. you know the soil, fertility of the soil, right. etc. So, uh, of course, there will be variation. How that impacts the effect and how that impacts the alkaloid profile of each leaf. I, I, I can't comment for certain. Yeah, I'll send you, I'll yeah. send you a link to that report that I did for the for the royal family. Uh, yeah. It contains, I mean, it's it's a long paper. Yeah, it's like 250 pages long. It's uh, it's, it's a book essentially. But the the section on Thailand specifically contains like a history of the drug control system in Thailand from like the the. 40s or the 30s all the way up to 2020 or 2019 or 2018 so it puts you know it talks about kratom cannabis uh heroin methamphetamines etc but it gives you like a, a kind of a historical overview of the development of the system and what's in place and what changes have happened over time and what made those changes possible so for perhaps some of your readers who are more interested in the policy context in thailand might find that interesting well, I hope you all found that interesting. I sure did. I was pretty blown away by Pascal Tangway. I learned a lot, and I'm very grateful. If you're grateful for this episode as well, please like, subscribe, comment, share. We don't ask for money, but we do ask your support in that fashion. The music is Risey. The song is called Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher for KratomScience.com Take care.